0: Be seated. Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, you, you speak to us uh, here like, a, like an almighty king. You command us to come and you command us to take uh, your yoke upon us and you command us to learn from you. And you, when you issue those commands, you sound like a king. And in the very same commands... You also sound like a tender high priest and gracious Savior. You promise to give us rest. You you promise that when we are close to you, we we will experience your gentleness and your lowliness of heart, and our souls will rest. And you assure us that your yoke is easy and that your burden is light. And we thank you for just even in the small compass of these three verses, how beautiful the self-portrait that you draw of yourself is. And it is our longing this morning that you would be known, that you would draw us by your spirit so that we are in, every single one of us are brought in to the heart of that reality, that we wouldn't touch the outsides of these holy things, but we would be brought by your Spirit on the inside of them. And, And so we pray that on both sides of this pulpit, you would grant that we might be coming to you, that you would grant that we would be taking your yoke upon us and learning from you, and that we would have as our testimony that indeed to the glory of God and because of who you are, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. We want that music of your gospel to break forth from us. And we pray particularly that this would be the day of salvation for those who do not yet know you. And we pray in your name. Amen. Well, Let me, uh, let me start with something very basic, which is that Jesus Christ is a person who's alive. And we are persons who are alive. And so what that means is that verses 28 through 30 are the commands and promises of a person to persons. Persons. And because Jesus Christ is a person, that means that obeying his command to come to him means to come to all that he is with all that we are. When Jesus commands us to come to him, he is not offering pieces of himself to pieces of us. He is calling all that we are Come to all that He is. He will not dole Himself out in pieces to pieces of us. And so this morning, um, I want to dip uh, more directly into these last three verses in the chapter, but we're not going to finish them this morning. Uh, my, My plan, anyway, by God's grace, is that we'll finish them next week as we go to the table. Uh, I told you last week that this week we're going to think about what it means to come to Him. And we're going to do that in two parts. This morning, I want to think about it negatively. Three ways of avoiding Jesus. And then next week, as we go to the table, uh, what it means uh, positively to come to Him And these uh, three ways of avoiding Jesus inside the church, this isn't just going to be negative. We'll be thinking about the contrast with the the gospel this morning. But these three ways uh, actually are all possible inside the church. And the first of those ways that we'll think about is by refusing to come to Him. The second is by coming to Him as a, quote, Savior, but not as Lord. And the third is by coming to him as, uh, quote, Lord, but not as Savior. So I'll explain what those mean uh, as we go along. Let's look first at, at the, the whole way of avoiding Jesus altogether uh, by refusing to come to him whatsoever. And this is the most obvious <coughs> way of avoiding Jesus, even inside the church, And it's the one that's illustrated by the three cities in verses 20 through 24, which just, you know, every time I read those five verses and every time I hear them read, I'm just absolutely uh, chilled to my very bones. Um, It is, it of course is obvious to each of us that it's possible to reject Jesus from the outside of the church. (laughs) Um, uh, Many of us were those kinds of people i was one of those uh, people but what makes a uh, 20 through 24 uh, so chilling is uh, because uh, these three cities that jesus denounces were the three cities remember where uh, most or look at verse 20 where most of his mighty works had been done and yet they did not repent now, I'm not saying that Capernaum and uh, Bethsaida and Chorazin are the inside of the church. I'm just saying that they are places where there was an abundance of gifts from Jesus. His presence was there. His teaching was there. His mighty works were done there. And that is very much like the inside of the church, is it not? And yet it was still possible for people to be surrounded by the truth about Jesus, and not repent. And so I don't take it for granted as a pastor that the inside of the church automatically means that you are repenting or even that I am repenting. Don't think that in any way I am talking under this first point about people besides myself. I am talking to all of us. Right? The outside of the church isn't the only place that Jesus is rejected. The New Testament is full of examples where Jesus can be and is actually rejected on the inside of the church. It's a chilling reality that I see not only in this text, but I've seen it in my 31 years as a Christian and in my 12 years as a pastor. I've seen it. And so have you. Right, the the reality is that sometimes nearness to Jesus results in hardness toward Jesus. These three cities were the places where Jesus had done most of his mighty works up till now. And the city you'll remember that Jesus denounces the most severely, Capernaum, was a place of special blessing. Because Jesus himself lived there as his base of operations for his Galilean Galilean ministry after he left Nazareth. Nazareth, He lived there. He lived there. And friends, remember Jesus in his, his own household, right? The Gospel of John tells us that his own brothers did not believe in him. Not just when they were little kids, but when they were adults. And he had four brothers. They grew up in the same house with Jesus and did not repent. So I don't take it for granted. I think that there are times when we need to face the fact that the inside of the church can be a very dangerous place because something can happen in the inside of the church which can't happen on the outside of the church, and it is that you can fool yourself into thinking that because you recognize the sound of the gospel, because you can even explain the gospel, because you can even find your heart being moved by what you think is the gospel, that you can convince yourself that you have come to Christ when, in fact, you have not. You've just come close to Christ. Friends, Jesus lives here in the midst of this church. Jesus performs mighty works here inside of this church in the lives of the people who are assembled here and through this church. Jesus teaches us here inside His church, and He calls us here inside the church. And so you say, well, wait a second. Why else would I be here if it wasn't for Jesus? Well, there are a lot of reasons, actually. You might be here, honestly. You might be here because we don't have a drum set. You might be here because you remember that hymns are the way you grew up. And that somehow, like the smell of a pumpkin pie coming through your house when you go back uh, for Thanksgiving, you're carried back to an era that you thought was better. You might be here because you look at the world around us and you think it is going to hell in a handbasket. And at least there's an island where absolute truth is valued and where cultural values that now our society at large is chucking are at least honored. Friends, that's not coming to Jesus, is it? You could be here because you're a child, a covenant child, and your parents have brought you here. You've been brought to Jesus. Jesus has been brought to you, but you have not come to him. Uh, You could be here because you're a parent who is bringing his children or her children here because you want to spare your children the wreckage of your own childhood. And so you recognize that church is important, but bringing them to church is not the same thing as you coming to Jesus. Jesus. You could be here because you're a husband or a wife who is trying, trying so desperately to set an example for your spouse. You're here because secretly you feel like you need to atone for years of straying in the wilderness, and that if you at least start heading sort of in the right direction, that perhaps God will return blessing to your life that you've squandered. But that is not coming to Jesus. None of those things are coming to Jesus. You can grow up inside the church. As a covenant child inside a Christian family, you can be in a Christian school and have it not be a safe place. You can be in the Christian ministry and not have that be a safe place if you don't come to Jesus in each of those places. You see, why Why are you here? Are you here because Jesus has called you? Are you here because you're responding to his summons to come to him? Oh, friends, young and old, in every one of those places where you've been brought to Jesus and where you have been brought close to the mighty works of Jesus and where you've been exposed to the teachings of Jesus, those places are places of great and limitless opportunity but they are also necessarily by virtue of that very fact places of immense obligation. Look at how Jesus addresses these three cities, friends. You see, the urgency of coming to Jesus increases rather than decreases inside the church. And you can see that from the way that Jesus addresses these three cities. He says, and by the way, these three cities are backwaters in world history. Were it not for Jesus Christ living and ministering there, you would not even see their names printed, would you? Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. But when the Son of God came, he came to these places. And because he had been there and because he had done mighty works there, because he had blessed them with the opportunity of having access to him and to his ministry, there was a corresponding obligation imposed upon them to respond in repentance and faith. And when they did not, He pronounced woes over them. And He said to them that the three most wicked cities in the Old Testament, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, would get off easier on the day of judgment than these three no-name places. Why? Because He had been there. So friends, it is the people on the inside of the church who are exposed to the gospel, who hear it, who are living next door to the temple of Jesus Christ in your Christian neighbor. It is those people upon whom God reigns his mercy in 10 billion ways that we will never be able to list in their totality were we to live for 10 billion ages. It is those people who will be judged if they do not repent. So I ask you, friends, to think through what you have done and are doing with Jesus' mighty works in your own life. Have you come to him, or are you refusing to come to him? Here's the good news. We don't know how the story of these three cities in Bethsaida, and Capernaum ended. We don't know what happened after Jesus uh, pro- proclaimed these things that he did in uh, verses 20 through 24. And we don't know what's going to happen in your life either. See, the story, the next chapter in your story is not written yet, friend. And this Jesus... Who pronounces the woes in verses 20 through 24 is the same Jesus who, on those who fail to repent, is also the one who is still this morning inviting every single one of us to meet him at the foot of his cross and to come to him there. And that promise is available. He will meet you there. But you must come to him and you must repent. This is the mightiest of his works. This is the clearest of his works. This is the best of his works. This is the gentlest of his works. And it is the most powerful of his works. And it is the kindest of his works. And he calls us to meet him at the foot of that cross. Will you come? Young, old, doesn't matter. Church member, doesn't matter. Pastor, elder, deacon, doesn't matter. Professor, Christian, teacher, doesn't matter. You won't meet him there unless you repent. It's a beautiful place. It's the place of life. So that's the first way to avoid Jesus inside the church. It's to be around him. It's to be close to him. It's for him to be familiar, but never to come. And I can think of no greater tragedy to witness as a pastor, than that. None. What I would not give to have my unbelieving family members saturated with the gospel in a church week after week. Don't squander. Don't squander the most valuable treasure there is in the universe. Don't let it slip through your fingers. Don't think that you've got it when you don't have it. The second way to avoid him is by coming to him as it were as savior but not as lord. And this is very common. And I, I put scare quotes around Savior. Because, and I'm going to put later on the third point, I'm going to put scare quotes around Lord. Because a Jesus Christ who is not both Savior and Lord is neither. He is a figment. He is not the Jesus Christ who is. He is a counterfeit. And yet he is a widely embraced counterfeit. He is a widely uh, A celebrated counterfeit, and he doesn't exist. And he can promise you nothing, and he can provide for you nothing. A Jesus who is Savior, but not Lord. This is such a dangerous way of not coming to Jesus because it looks like you have come. At least the first way of not coming, the open rejection of Jesus, is virtuous in this. That you know it. What do I mean when I say that you come to Jesus, you can come to Jesus as Savior but not as Lord? Well, what I mean by it is this. It's coming to Jesus for forgiveness apart from holiness. And just like the, the next scenario where we come to Jesus as Lord but not as Savior, what, what's, what's at the heart of both of these errors is that it appears to come to Jesus by taking glory away from him, by taking pieces of Jesus and not the whole Jesus, by bringing only pieces of who we are and not our whole selves. It takes glory away away from Jesus Christ, to come to him as your putative savior, but not to embrace and submit to him as Lord. Here's what it sounds like. I want forgiveness apart from holiness. I want justification to be declared right by God apart from sanctification, apart from being made holy. I want to be pardoned without being transformed. I want a clean record without a clean heart. I want to be rescued without being ruled. I want to be saved by Jesus without being submitted to him. I want a relationship with God apart from discipleship, certainly apart from lordship. I want him to take up his cross for me without me having to take up mine for him. I want to be a child of the king without having a king. I want a love that binds his heart to me without binding mine to him. I want a grace that frees me from obligation, not a grace that frees me for obligation. I want eternal security without persevering fidelity to him. I want a cross that costs him, but not me. I want a Jesus on the cross for my eternal life who lets me remain on the throne of my earthly life. And that Jesus doesn't exist, friends. That's a cartoon. That Jesus can't help you any more than Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse could. And yet, uh, largely due to pastors, giving people false assurance and watering down the gospel and swerving away from Jesus' clear teaching on the cost of discipleship, there are legions of people, I believe, in the American church who think that it is possible to come to Jesus and have Him as their Savior without having them as their Lord, and that is not coming to Jesus. You see, the problem is that this diminishes Jesus. This is the error of easy believism. Pray the prayer, sign the card, walk the aisle, use the sinner's prayer, put it in your own words, do it in the magic words, whatever the words are, which aren't in the Bible. There's not one person in the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 who prays the sinner's prayer. This is the error of easy believism and cheap grace. It is the error that wrongly believes that it's possible to come to Jesus once in conversion without, having, without understanding that what conversion means is a turning of the whole life toward Christ, not a coming once and then going on. It's a turning of the life toward Christ. It separates this error, what the gospel always joins together, which is forgiveness and holiness. What a small Savior this makes Jesus. I mean, think about it. It is so dishonoring to Jesus because what it does is essentially this error uh, holds that the only thing, you know, that sin, that there's the problem of sin and sin, uh, is a debt, and this, this is biblical, right? That sin is a, a terrible uh, it's a debt that we owe to God. It's, it creates this obligation, this guilt before God, before this holy God. and we need to have that guilt answered. And, and the way of coming to Jesus that looks to him only as Savior but not as Lord reduces the problem of sin to this one problem of guilt and says, if you can only get forgiveness, if your guilt could possibly be forgiven, if Jesus could save you from your guilt before God, then that would be enough. And you could go on and live the rest of, rest of your life the way you want to live. But friends, that diminishes the saving work of Christ, that diminishes the kind of Savior that Jesus is. Because, yes, friends, we do need to be delivered from the penalty of our sins. We do. But that's not all we need to be delivered from. Sin has a power in our lives, and that power needs to be broken. And it is at Calvary. When you come to Christ, you have now been brought by the power of the reigning Lord into a new relationship with sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. He has broken its power. And if you are no longer the slave to sin, Romans 6 says, then you don't go on presenting the members of your body to sins, to sin, as weapons or tools of unrighteousness. You present yourselves as those alive from the dead to God, and you give. This is the Christian life. You give, and you keep giving your members, every part of who you are, to God through Jesus Christ as weapons of righteousness. But there's a third way that Jesus delivers us from sin, that this error obscures, and it is not just his deliverance from sin's penalty or sin's power, which happens in our conversion, but friends, the greatest longing of the Christian's heart is to be delivered fully from the presence of sin in our lives. Amen? If you are not burdened by the presence of sin in your life, and if you are not leaning forward in kind of an anguished joy to the day when the birth pangs will be complete and the new creation in its fullness will be entered and you will be freed utterly from the presence of sin so that from top to bottom, you are honoring to your Lord and your whole person. If you If those aren't the longings of your heart, then friends, you... Have reason to question whether you've been born again. The longing of the Christian to be delivered from the presence of sin as something that is hateful, as something that is harmful, as something that is the very reason Jesus was crucified for you. I want it gone. I want it gone from my life. I want my attraction to it killed. Even in Return of the King last night, in the very last scene, uh, Bilbo, who was the original guy to find the ring, I'm sorry, if you don't know any of this, I'm sorry, grab somebody after the service, they'll tell you this, but Bilbo, who originally found the ring and then gave it to Frodo, he's dying, he is dying, and he looks at Frodo and he says, I would really like to see my ring and to touch it just once more. I wept because that is still the remaining presence of sin in his life. He's not yet free. Friends, Jesus is a great Savior. He doesn't just free us from the penalty for our sins. He breaks the power of reigning sin in our lives. And one day... He will completely free us from the presence of our sin and that is the magnitude of the love of God for us in Christ. That's the kind of deliverer he is. There is no forgiveness that does not produce holiness. Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Very next petition, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. In God's mind, because he is God of the gospel, forgiveness is the root of holiness. And if you think back, to uh, my, my favorite quote from John Owen last year. Do you remember? The shortest sentence that I have yet found John Owen has ever written. Three words, I guess amen counts, but that's not a sentence. That's an exclamation. But The shortest sentence I've found that Owen wrote, grace gives beauty. That's his summary of sanctification. And, and I think that applies here. If you've received grace, I think it's an accurate summary of the Bible. If you have received Jesus' saving grace, there will be a necessary, unavoidable fruit of beauty that grows out of that. And so look at Jesus' picture here. Look at the picture of the relationship that he draws for us in 28 through 30 with him. You see this? He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he's calling us into relationship with him. He's promising us rest. But notice, he's not saying, I will give you rest unattached from a relationship. Notice, he keeps pushing it further. He says, okay, here's what it means to come to me. Take my, it's not just to receive from me, but to receive from me this rest in the context of the closest of relationships. Take my yoke upon you. That means bind yourself to me. Don't just come, get rest, get back in the car and go the way you want and know that you've touched your Jesus idol so you're good to go. He says, take my yoke upon you, and what else? Bind yourself to me, learn from me. See, there's a relationship. Receive grace from me, this gift of relationship, and in the context of that relationship, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that I am gentle and lowly in heart, and that is how you will find rest for your souls. See, it's the relationship that is going to transform us. Why is he telling us That he is gentle and lowly in heart right after he tells us to learn from him. What he's saying is, I'm gonna make you like me. Come to me so that I can make you like me. I'm not saying come to me when you've made yourself like me. I'm saying come to me so that I can make you like me. I'm gonna transform you. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. Right? But we, as with unveiled face, are beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And as we do that, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. That's the Christian life. We keep looking at Jesus after we've received his gifts and we are changed into his image. It is a beautiful thing. Grace gives beauty. Jesus beautifies us when he touches us. His forgiveness necessarily produces holiness in us. So you cannot come to him as Savior without coming to him as the Lord who calls you to submit to him, who binds you to himself, who speaks authoritatively into your life, correcting you, transforming you into his image. And notice, this isn't just a temporary yoke. This is the nature of the Christian life. We don't just put it on when we walk the aisle or sit in the anxious bench or pray the sinner's prayer or sign the card. No, this is the Christian life. We're yoked to him. He is never far away. So that is the second way of avoiding Jesus. A Jesus who is Savior but not Lord is neither And so he calls, this Jesus calls us again, friends, to come and meet him at the foot of his cross and to find that that in order for him to be our Savior, he must also be our Lord or he is not our Savior at all. Finally, the third error, which is to come to Jesus as Lord but not Savior. What do I mean by that? Well, this is essentially it sounds like this, I recognize in Jesus an authoritative and morally superior example and teacher. I am a a person who wants to be a good person, and so I come to Jesus as my teacher and my example. And this is essentially the error of moralism, which uh, pursues holiness is the inverse, right? Of the first problem. It pursues holiness as the path to forgiveness rather than the path from it. It pursues holiness as personal holiness as the root of God's approval rather than the fruit of God's approval. Holiness as the cause of God's acceptance of us rather than the effect that God's acceptance has in our lives as our gift to God rather than God's gift to us. And this is widespread as well. And in fact, friends, if we're honest, uh, Christians experience these temptations. We get out of whack, right? I mean, the gospel is so radical. It is so counterintuitive. Friends, I read that first sentence in that reflection quote from Horatius Bonner when it says, It is with our sins that we go to God, for we have nothing else that we can call our own. And I want to raise my hand and say, But, 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 I think I do have some things to call my own. Number one, that's my first but, 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 but. That's the self-righteous but, 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 but. But there's another But. And the other side, both of these arguments coexist in my head, and they're not logical. But man, are they dug in deep. The other side is this. If I go with my sins, I'll never be accepted. If I'm honest about who I really am, I'll never be safe. Now, you know what those are? Those sound like opposites, don't they? They are two sides of the same coin. The moralistic coin. And what is the nature of that coin? That coin is my obedience, my moral effort as the basis for my acceptance with God. This side that raises the objection and says I do have some things to bring with me this is the side of that coin where the delusion uh, persists that, the, that I've succeeded in my moral efforts and this side is the, side, the other side of the same coin where I think I've failed but this is not the gospel coin right? this is moralism this is uh, Religiosity. This is uh, good living. And if the first error, Jesus as Savior but not as Lord, was justification without sanctification, this error you could say is justification by sanctification. And it may be that within the church this is the most widespread error. Basing our sense of our standing with God on our own assessment of our progress in the Christian life. Boy, that dies hard, doesn't it? It dies hard. It is very hard to believe, but so beautiful and wonderful to hear that it is nothing that I do that qualifies me for God. And only what Jesus has done. So my performance is irrelevant. My failures are irrelevant. Christ's triumph is the only thing that's relevant because he had no failures. Friends, that means that regardless of your day, regardless of your week, Every single day in the Christian life, if you are clinging to Christ, you have exactly the same warrant to be in the presence of God as the risen, reigning, glorified Son of God does. And only if the Father, only if you can conceive of a set of facts or a scenario in which the, the Father of glory would deny to his, the Son of His love and the Son of glory access to His throne, then and only then, can you imagine yourself being denied that same access if you are in Christ if you've come now you know what when i say that two things happen in my heart i am thrilled and i soar above the clouds with joy but there's also there are also breaks on my heart don't 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 say it too strong I believe, I believe the gospel, Father, help my unbelief. It is so amazing. This is why you need to read your Bible often. This is why you need to worship often. Not to gain God's approval, but so that you can understand that you have it. Not so, you, not so God will love you more, but so that you'll love God more. You can't keep God's favor through your obedience. And this view, too, is very offensive to the glory of Jesus. It diminishes him erratically. It comes to Jesus just like the easy believism. It comes to Jesus by taking glory away from him. It diminishes Jesus in multiple ways. What it, If I believe, think about it, friends, if I believe that I can, I can keep myself or make myself obedient or resolve myself, we're coming up to uh, uh, New Year's Day and all those resolutions for the new year. Oh, my goodness, that's so unhelpful to me because I'm so driven to just do and finally fix myself. I hate New Year's resolutions because I want to make them and I hate them. But see, I want my obedience to gain my approval with God, and yet I know it can't. I need the gospel. I need to hear Jesus say to me, come to me, you mess, Francis. Come to me, acknowledging the bankruptcy of your own labors, acknowledging that you are your own heaviest burden, and I will give you rest. I need to hear that. But if I believe that my resolutions or my performance, think about how this diminishes Jesus. If I think that I can do this, friends, that I can either gain God's favor or keep it. See, both are true. If I, I, this, this error, moralism, creeps into both, that I can either gain God's favor to begin with or keep it and maintain it through my obedience. You know what I'm saying about the cross? I'm saying it was superfluous. I'm saying that Jesus' death was not necessary. I'm saying that Jesus' life was not necessary. I'm saying it was overkill. And what I have to do, it's really a master stroke. What I have to do is I have to simultaneously lower the ceiling of God's holiness and raise the floor of my own achievements so that they're within reach. And that's crazy. I mean, that is just... It is so offensive to the holiness of God for me to ever think that I could reach him. That when he sent his son, when God looked upon the plight of sinful men and women and decided, determined that the only way, the only way that they could be saved was for the second person of the Trinity, his beloved son, to lay aside his glory and to take on human flesh and not just to take on human flesh but then to make himself the lowest of men and even more than that to die as the conclusion of a life of perfect obedience to him. What I'm saying is that that was an exaggeration. All in the service of honoring my own obedience. It's important to slow this kind of stuff down to think it out so we can recognize it when it's starting to happen in our lives because most of life is not this thought through. And the reason I linger over this is because your hearts are just like mine. And it's important to open these things up so we can see that where those thoughts lead is a diminishing of Jesus. And we don't want that. I don't want to worship my own will. I want to worship God's will. Moralism, when it comes to Jesus, it comes with something besides need. It says, Something in my hands I bring, supplementally to thy cross I cling. That's its anthem. But you see, this is not going to work. You know, I was reading in Jonah on Thanksgiving, Read Jonah 1. It's very interesting to see how you, how you can see this uh, show up all over uh, the scriptures. And in Jonah 1, it's very interesting. You know, you know how that story goes. And, and eventually Jonah gets exposed, right? And he's the problem, and everyone on the ship knows that he's the problem. And so he comes up in this amazingly detached way and says, Okay, I'm the one. So here's what you need to do. You know, the storm is raging. Here's what you need to do. Throw me in, and the storm will go away. In other words, what Jonah's saying is, let me be the sacrifice to save you, the human sacrifice to save you. Now, if, I'm just being honest with you. If I'd been on that boat, I would have said, over you go, turkey. <laughs> that is not what the men do. You know what the text says They did. Literally, it said... Well, in the ESV, it says they rode harder to dry land. They didn't accept Jonah's offer. And literally, what it means is they dug in trying to get to dry land. That is moralism. Anything to avoid the need for a sacrifice. And friends, is that how you respond is that what you think your hope is going to be? That you just dig in deeper? Because it won't work for you any better than it worked for the men in that ship. Because you're up against a standard and a power that you can't get ahead of. And so the only answer is a savior. Moralism is just a Ponzi scheme. It's just like Bernie Madoff. You you yeah, how does a Ponzi scheme work? I get money from you, and I promise to repay you. But what do I use to repay you? By incurring more debts to other people, and the way I pay those people back is by incurring debts from other people and paying them back. And it's all a big scheme, and none of it is your money. And you're just you're just a pass-through, friends. That's what moralism is. God already owns everything that you have to pay Him back. God is already entitled to your perfect obedience. So there is never any sense in which you're giving Him something new. It's like Going to the bank and saying, I would like you to make me another loan. Well, Mr. Francis, what's the purpose of this loan? So that I, well, the purpose of this loan is so that I can repay the mortgage that you gave me last week. Now, you see, it's funny, right? It's also deeply offensive to God because, like the men in the boat, it tries to avoid the sacrifice. And Jesus has a much different vision, doesn't he? You see it in verses 28 through 30. See, isn't the gospel just amazing? Oh, how how the word of God exposes our hearts and how jealously the word of God guards the glory of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Only if a man would come and live for men Only if a man would live for men to the glory of God and fulfill God's law in the way that we have not. And only if that same man willingly as the apex of his life would give himself in substitution for us to bear in his body the debt of God's wrath that we had incurred for our own sins. Only then... And he would have to show us that that sacrifice was effective by rising from the dead, which he has done. And then he would call us to himself, not only as a loving Lord, but as a living Lord, to be in relationship with him, to find shelter before God in his life, where we know him as our Savior and we know him as our Lord. Only then will we be able to rest. And that is the only Jesus who exists. See, he calls us at the end of chapter 11. He says, Come in. I am not just your Lord, I am also your Savior. Do you notice this? He doesn't say, Come to me when you are successful in your labors and are fully energized by the triumph of your moral achievements. Who does he call? He calls people who have failed, he calls people who can't, not who did. He calls people who aren't relying on their own resolutions or their own promises of reformation. He calls people who are not hoping either in their past or in their present or in their future. He calls people who have done with those things and realize that the only possible answer is Him. You remember my Owen quote? Grace gives beauty. Well, the gospel gives beauty. You see, grace beautifies. This is the opposite of what moralism says. Moralism says beauty gives grace. If I make myself good enough, if I keep myself clean enough, if I avoid the things I should avoid well, then I'll gain acceptance. But you see, that's not the gospel. You don't need Jesus Christ for that. You can have the world for that because that's how the world talks to you. It's only when the voice of God comes into your life in the gospel and you hear the God of heaven saying, no, 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 my child. It is grace that you did not earn that will give you beauty. It is the unmerited gift of my son and all the work that he did on this this earth. That is what will make you beautiful. It is his beauty to give grace to those who need it and who will admit that they need it. This Jesus Christ is not a figment. This is not a counterfeit Jesus Christ. This is the only Jesus Christ who really is. He is both Savior and He is both Lord. And He calls every one of us to meet with Him at the foot of His cross, the mightiest of His works, the gentlest of His works, the strongest of His works, the best of His works. Friends, next week Advent is here. And you remember way back in Matthew 1, if you strain, you can remember Matthew 1, right? It was only a year ago. And you remember one of the things in Matthew 1 is that uh, Matthew celebrates that Jesus has two names, right? His first name is Jesus. I want you to think about this. Jesus, which means literally Yahweh is salvation. That means, if I put that in the language of this morning's message, that means that he is the Savior who is the Lord. His other name is Emmanuel, which is precious to us. And that means literally God with us. And in the framework of this morning's sermon, you could say that that means that He is the Lord, who is the Savior. You see, He is both or He is neither. So when He calls you to come to Him, friends, the good news of the gospel is that All that he is, both Savior and Lord, he calls to you and invites you and all that you are to come to him. He will not dole himself out in pieces. It will not content him. He wants to give you his whole self. Let's pray. Lord, we pray. We pray that we would be done with every glory-taking thought or response to you and that we would know you as Jesus and as Emmanuel and that you would receive your full glory from us. We pray in your name. Amen.